2: Hello, and thanks for listening to Basic Folk, where we get honest conversations with folk musicians on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. It's Cindy Howes. I am the host. Before we get into our conversation with Edie Carey, who is just the best, I want to talk about ways we can stay in touch. Because isn't that what it's all about? Community building connection in the modern world. Well, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter at basicfolk.com. That's also where you can find our social media handles at Basic Pod. If you'd like to make a contribution, we are a listener-supported operation. You can do so at basicfolkcom slash donate. If you give at least $5 a month or $60 for the entire year, you'll gain access to our bonus episodes, which are located... On basicfolk.com slash backstage. That's right, gain access and hang out with us backstage with your contribution. Thanks a lot. Again, all of the info at basicfolk.com. Okay, Edie Carey's last solo full length album was in 2010. So we are more than ready to dig into her new record, The Veil, encompassing themes like motherhood, infertility, love, being a lady while raising a little girl, and all the things that make you cry into your cereal. Edie first appeared on Basic Folk episode 18, and if you haven't, you should listen, Not only does she talk about her history, but she very openly details her experience with infertility, including the story about winning her son in a raffle. Long story short, her husband won a free IVF treatment at an infertility conference, which then turned into their son, Luca. In this conversation, Edie and I go track by track on her new album, which is a joy because number one, I love Edie's songs, and number two, I love Edie, a winning combo. These days, Edie is residing in Colorado Springs, working with area musicians, touring occasionally when COVID is not raging, and raising her two young kids. Something that's extraordinary about Edie is that she is not afraid to say things out loud that most people are. She experienced burnout after her first baby was born, longed for her pre-baby life, and felt guilty about it. The good news is, She turns emotions like this into fully formed songs where people can see themselves through her experience and then be okay with talking about the hard things. Enjoy this conversation. Edie is so fun and so inspiring. Also, she is aggressively friendly, and that's the way we like it. Enjoy our conversation with Edie Carey on Basic Folk. Edie, thank you so much for being on Basic Folk again. It's so great to see you. It's good to see you. Thank you for having me back. We're gonna go through your album The Veil, track by track. Mm-hmm. Um a couple questions before that. And I just listened to our Basic Folk conversation when you were first on. It was like basic folk 16 mm-hmm. or something like that. It was like very early on. But yeah. I've I've noticed that my questions have gotten way longer. So apologies in advance.
1: (laughs) I love a long quest. I'm into it. I love it. I love it. That's a Terry Gross thing that has seemed to happen for her too. And I love it. I'm totally into it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) A narrative in your story is that, you know, you originally wanted to be a doctor, you did pre-med at Barnard. But right off the bat, you abandoned that idea because two things really struck your fancy. That was music, performing mm-hmm. music, writing music, and the Italian language. Um, you actually ended up studying in Italy, and that's where every Tuesday you would perform on the streets and really, you know, worked on your guitar playing and got your chops up up to speed. But I wanted to ask you about your connection to the Italian language, how that started, what drew you towards it, and what that relationship is like now.
1: Wow, no one has ever asked me that question. Um, That's a really good question. I think I was drawn to Italian because I had sung classical music all through high school which my voice teachers made me study not because i necessarily was particularly into singing classical music i didn't think i was very good at it but i knew it was a good way to kind of be more versatile as a singer but i really wanted to sing like tiffany and debbie gibson and aretha franklin (laughs) an eclectic crew um but when you're singing all these songs and you don't have any idea what they mean i don't know it just sort of seemed interesting to me when i had to pick a language in college I was drawn to Italian maybe for that reason. I think also Italian, which I, uh, you know, anybody who hears Italian, whether they understand it or not, it sounds really musical. You know, it's very kind of lyrical and flowy. And something that I noticed about Italians after living there for a year is they really use a wide range of their vocal space. You know, they go way high and they go way low. And I realized and like cuz I vo- my voice would get tired speaking Italian after a long periods of time and I couldn't figure out why and then I realized like American English we kind of stay in a pretty tight zone pitch-wise mm. when we speak but Italians go all the way up and all the way down and you know there's the stereotype that they use their hands but I feel like their voices are like just as you know mm. gesticulating as their voices are I mean as their hands are maybe Um, So I don't know. I was drawn to it because I wanted to understand what I'd been singing. But I think also (laughs) this is a little bit of a cheating thing. But my dad had sort of pushed me towards taking Latin for seven years in high school. I think maybe because he did. And he thought it would help me in my life and understanding how to figure out what words I don't know mean by breaking them down into their Latin roots. But going from learning Latin into learning Italian really was like a fairly easy leap. So Mm I don't know. And then... I also had a super cool, awesome Italian teacher, who I just would do anything she told me to do. And she lived in Bologna, Italy. And she was like, "You should go study abroad, and you can go play music on the streets over there." And I was like, "All right, Daniela, I'll go." <laughs> and I did, and uh, it was really such an imag- it was a magical year. I don't think I honestly would be doing this job had I not had that year of time and space. Mm. To try out songs for people who couldn't understand them. It was a very safe way to sort of like start to get brave about sharing my songs on the street and then mm. with my friends over there. And by the time I came back, I felt a little more confident in doing that. I mean, it was still new, but I think that was a very formative time. Do you keep up time.
2: with your Italian? You know,
1: um, I don't have a lot of occasion to speak it. Occasionally, somebody who's heard my music will randomly write and just say, you know, I heard this song and I love it. And they'd write to me in English. And then it's so fun because I'm like, oh, my God, I get to respond in Italian. So occasionally I'll get to write it. And I do have friends still that I lived with over there with whom I keep in contact. So I will speak with them as well. Mm. Um I actually still think in Italian a lot because I never want to lose it. So I'll often say something to my kids and then in my mind I'll say, now how would I say that in Italian? It still feels like this sort of ghost version of me that's in me that Mm -hmm. doesn't really get accessed very often, but it still feels like this very big part of who I am. And that feels sort of silly since it's not that current in my life. Would you ever write a song in Italian? I actually meant to do that for this record. I mean, not necessarily the record that became The Veil, but when I was sort of collecting songs... And uh, I was kind of like, God, it would be kind of cool to write an Italian song. And then, I don't know, the other 12 songs kind of took over. But it is absolutely something I would really love to do. I feel like I'd be nervous to do it, but why the hell not? I think it'd be really fun.
2: My God, all of these songs on this album would make me nervous to write. So uh, (laughs) it's not a new thing for you, I would think. (laughs) I like getting uncomfortable. I'm really into it. (laughs) Um, All right, let's get into the songs on The Veil. Starts off with the title track, and here is a long setup. Here we go. So, you wrote The Veil a week after you and your kids got into a really serious car accident, about two months before COVID closed down the world. In one verse in the song, The Veil refers to the thin shroud of security we want to believe we have between us and danger how disturbing it is when that shroud is suddenly taken away. It's also about the loss of innocence that we had once had as kids. So Edie, can you talk about your experience when that veil, when the safety net has gotten ripped back? um, When did you first have that happen to you? And how do you Mm. think it impacted your psyche? I'm thinking of like, you know, we've all had these moments where all of a sudden like you can't breathe, you lose control, Your emergency voice Mm -hmm. comes out. So (laughs) I don't know if you have like a a visceral moment of when that first happened.
1: Um, That is such a good question. I think, yeah, you're so right. We all have those moments where you sort of feel like your skin and your blood go cold. Um, That accident certainly was one of those moments. I honestly feel like probably the first time I ever really had that feeling you know probably was when i was really little and finding out my parents were getting a divorce um but i was so small yeah. i was only 4 when i probably knew that was happening and maybe it was a more gradual process um but really sort of understanding like okay everything that i have known up till now is has it not been true or everything's changing and the world that i have known is now shifting Um, again, I was too little to really remember that, but I, but anytime you have kind of one of those big, like, Oh, I'm now about to like move into my next biggest skin or my next big skin. Like I'm letting go of who I've been before now. And now I'm going to go to this next phase. Um, I, I think probably when I was about 15, I had a really terrible depression when I was 15 that kind of struck kind of out of nowhere. Um, and I do remember, like, just sitting at the table with my stepdad and his family and my mom and my sister. And I just sort of had this, like, wave of that feeling of, like, nothing is okay and I don't know why. And it was such a terrifying feeling. And I think that's the first time I remember feeling that. And uh, in in some ways, even though that was so scary, I came through it and it was okay. But it took a long time. And I felt like a year after that happened, yeah, I guess I was probably about 15 about 15, I couldn't, it was almost like I couldn't remember who I'd been before that. Um, Like you're so kind of fundamentally changed um, in hard ways, but also that you also have this grit to you that you didn't have before. And so while it's so scary and awful when you have something big like that it's like this incredible gift because it sort of equips you for the next (laughs) phase
2: of who you become, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, you know, and when the car accident happened and, you know, I remember just feeling like, okay, now how am I going to feel comfortable in a car again? And even now, you know, it's two and a half years later and I still, driving through an intersection, feel my shoulders kind of go up like, is someone going to come out of nowhere? Um, Yeah. It's certainly way better than it was, but it, you know, when you have an experience, like it leaves a trace on you and even if it gets yeah. easier with time it's there and it kind of always will be but that's also what makes us richer and stronger and hardier and a- more able to laugh at the hard stuff right it's because mm. you because you come through it and then you're like all right i'm a little uh grittier than i was before and that's okay and that's good i'm more ready for whatever the next thing's going to be
2: um now let's talk about your movie star daughter uh <laughs> she would love to talk about herself i'm sure oh my gosh (laughs) she's so great she was in the music video for the veil and she plays the roles of both your daughter and the young untarnished version Mm -hmm. of Edie. so how was it like to shoot that video with emmy Mm. it
1: was really amazing i mean emmy looks older in the video for anybody who sees it she looks older than she is she's five and she's about to be six and we filmed it a couple months ago um But, you know, she has like she seems she's at an age where she seems super grown up and kind of like ready for anything can be super helpful. And you're kind of like, are you nine? Like, who are you? And then she (laughs) could have days where she's just like a feral animal because she's still so little. And so my husband and I were like, this could be a disaster. Like, what if she's just not in the mood to do it? And sure, she gets shy in front of the camera. And she was just amazing. I think Emmy is, like, a a lot like me in that she's, like, kind of a ham and loves kind of, like, being in the center of the action. And I think for her, that worked really well. It was wonderful. She was, you know, I was worried she would feel like she had to perform. And I said, listen, your only job is to go have fun and play. And you're so good at that. So just go fun and have, like, forget that the cameras are there. And it will be great. And that's exactly what she did. She just had a blast being around horses and playing with her stuffed horse and climbing on tractors. And it was just magic. And, you know, we really tried to sort of get her stuff done. And then she just played on the horses. And then I went and shot my stuff. So it really felt like a day that we were just on this beautiful ranch in eastern Colorado. And then uh, we ate a peanut butter sandwich and went home and we all fell into bed. But, I, you know, (coughs) I'm so grateful to have captured her at that age um, because she is just old enough to start to understand stuff, but she's still so in touch with pretend everything. Mm-hmm. And it felt like this like perfect nexus of like those two kinds of ages of understanding yeah. coming together, which seemed really perfect for the for the song, which is sort of about losing innocence and that's what we were sort of trying to capture in the video.
0: I've never seen such a great divide so high and so wide but it's been here all this time.
2: song is the old me back to after your first baby Luca was born it's okay to use their names right Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: okay um and you've talked publicly about your infertility journey in fact we spoke about it at length the last time you were on basic focus listeners have not heard it I implore you uh especially the great story about winning an IVF and a raffle and then that is how (laughs) you got Luca yes um however even after all this because um As new parents, you and your husband, Matt, were exhausted all over. You were kind of like longing for your old life. So what were you missing from that old life? And how did writing this song, even though it's like years later, feel Mm -hmm. to revisit that old life Mm -hmm. and then that newborn baby life?
1: I think what I was missing was the simplicity of just Matt and I together as a couple. Like when you have a baby – there's this triangulation that happens. And also as a nursing mom, you feel kind of like you're in this world like that you love and it's amazing and you're filled with oxytocin. And then you're also like, oh my (laughs) God, can someone not need me? I just need to not be needed for a little bit. And then I had all these feelings of guilt for having those feelings because I worked so hard to have this baby with whom I was so in love. But I also missed Matt, there's a there is this distancing from your partner that happens when you have a baby, maybe not to everybody, but it did for us. And I think um, it was it was an interesting time for both of us. And we really kind of had to learn to communicate differently. And but I just remember thinking, like, remember us when we weren't exhausted and we just were laughing all the time and our only decisions we had to make were like, what were we going to make for dinner? What movie (laughs) were we going to watch after dinner? And I I missed being able to write whenever I wanted to. I missed, you know, having like wide swaths of time. And which, of course, I filled like crazy before I had him. But suddenly it was like, all right, he's going to nap for 45 minutes. What 4,000 things am I going to try to cram into that time? (laughs) I will say I got a lot more efficient. But in all seriousness, you know, it it was just like this morning of the life we had before while we were growing into the new one. Um, and I do remember how hard that time was for the two of us. And then when we had my daughter, Emmy, we really had a lot of good come to Jesus conversations before she came to say like, all right, what did we not do so well communication wise before? And how can we preserve us in time for us as well? So that didn't feel like that disappeared with the arrival of a new baby. And so ironically, the second child was a lot easier because we had traversed it, and we figured out what had worked Mm. um but i don't know i think a lot of people especially when they go through infertility don't feel like they're allowed to complain or not even complain but at least acknowledge that it's painful to let go of the life that you've known before and and i think that's okay it's just normal it's like mourning the loss of any era of your life that seems really sweet and lovely um and it was and it is again in a totally different way you know but we just have a few more, you know, we're a little more tired. We have a little more, few more yeah. wrinkles now.
2: The chain that you co-wrote with Colorado songwriter Megan Burt is about feeling like we're never enough in the eyes of another, that no matter what we do, or try to prove their view of us remains unchanged. It's a song of realization, recognition, and ultimately letting go. By the way, Edie wrote a really good track by track. Um, I Then that's where I'm getting this information from. Um, <laughs> I have a friend named Janet who is a life coach, and she will post these great things on her Instagram. Um, the other day she posted one of, like, a sea otter, and it said... You're doing better than you think you are, which like in any other, if any other person posted that, I would be like mute. Delete, delete. Yeah. I like highly enjoy when Janet posts that because like I know Janet and whatever. But anyways, I enjoy it because, you know, burnout is real, Hmm. you know. So being enough, like how do you relate to being enough and where do you struggle with that and how do you catch yourself and stop from thinking that you aren't enough?
1: Oh God, I wish I could say that we wrote the song and like all those feelings of not being enough just disappeared. But I think, um, I don't know if you ever, I don't know. I certainly haven't figured out how to feel that way. Um, but I feel like I'm a lot further along on the journey maybe than I certainly was when I was younger. But I think, um, It's this weird duality of always wanting to be better and stronger and work harder at your craft or being a better parent or a better friend or partner or whatever. Of course, we see ourselves on that continuum and wanting to improve. And yet we also want to feel like we're okay just as we are right now. So like, how do you synthesize those two thoughts? I don't know. I don't don't know that you totally ever can as a human being because it's just sort of the nature of who we are in a lot of ways always kind of asking those questions and and in your own life you can feel like you're totally enough in the eyes of certain people and that they love you just as you are with all of your your crap that never goes away and then there's certain people like we talk about in this song that like no matter what you do or how many shiny things you bring them it's just like the the carrot dangles ever further away and and some people for whatever reason are gonna always make you feel that way because they feel that way about themselves. And so therefore they have to do that to you. So I guess it's like what we were talking about that day, she came down to visit and uh, we were just going to sort of hang out and eat lunch. And all of a sudden we were writing this song, but we were just talking about how, you know, how long do you go down that rabbit hole with the person? And what point do you sort of say, like, this is an empty hole that I'm never going to fill. And I can keep trying and suck the life out of myself and of you, the person that I'm trying to, (laughs) satisfy and just sort of yeah it was just kind of a healing song that we both felt like we needed at the time and it was uh, just sort of came out magically I'm so grateful we got to write it together it's the only co-write on the record and I'm so happy we wrote it together I just adore her
2: there's this thing uh, maybe I can look it up real quick on Janet's Instagram actually you gotta give me Janet's Instagram I'm gonna follow her Yeah, her name is Janet Forrest of course it is she was telling us about this book called Biff, okay. Quick Responses to High-Conflict People, Their Personal <laughs> Attacks, Hostile Email, and Social Media Meltdowns. Oh my god, I need to read that book. Janet and I Need to Be
1: Friends. Can you pull me into the Janet fold, please? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to find On her out. On it, send me, send me her Insta stat. That sounds like a book I need to read. I mean, I I think it's just so easy to get pulled into that stuff, and it's um, because if you do feel that way, and you think, oh, if I just do one more thing, then they're finally gonna see me. They're finally gonna like like get me. Or I mean, I certainly feel that way in music all the time. It just we are like, oh, that that per- that reviewer just is never. They don't get what I do, and they're never gonna get what I do. And and then sometimes you make a record, and they're like. Oh yeah, she's not so bad. And then that feels so validating; it becomes this intoxicating, intoxicating drug that you hate that you want to have in you. Yeah, that's that's like what an exhausting exercise. I could just mm-hmm. be hanging out with my kids, like doing fun. What things are instead we, twenty-three years old? What are we exactly, right, Janet? Listen, <laughs> listen, Janet. <laughs> <laughs> Janet wouldn't approve of that behavior. I can no, tell you that definitely much. Definitely not.
2: No. <laughs>
0: I'll never be enough for you
2: song, I Know This, it's actually written from the perspective of uh, first-line responder just dealing with COVID-19, all sorts of pandemicness. Mm-hmm. The thing that I took away um, from this is in your Track by Track, you were writing, you wrote that you couldn't stop thinking about New Yorkers Like once mm-hmm. the pandemic hit in April of 2020. Um, like you lived in New York for six years. Also, that was during 9-11 and you have like a really strong connection to the city. And that really resonated with me in terms of like the sensation of home during a crisis. Like I felt this for Mm -hmm. Pittsburgh when the pandemic started and I was in Boston. Mm -hmm. I felt this for Boston when I was in Pittsburgh during the marathon bombing Mm. How does that sensation of home hit you when a crisis occurs somewhere you're connected and you're not there? Mm.
1: Oh gosh, that's so interesting. Um, Well, I think in general, I feel like when you live in a place, it just sort of gets in your bones and it stays there forever. Even if it's a place that no longer serves you in New York for me, like eventually started to take more energy than it gave me. And initially, man, it gave me so much. I just was on such a high living in that city. Um, But I think, so, you know, any of the places I've lived, Portland, Maine, or uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and Boston, or just outside Boston, where I grew up, where we both grew up. Um, Yeah. 508. 508. Well, was I 508? (laughs) I don't remember what I was. Oh, it's terrible. 781. 781. I was just mixing it up with 718, which is Brooklyn. Which is New York. Speaking of New York, thank you. My God, (laughs) my number dyslexia is really showing up right now. And What I was going to say about New York, I mean... I think New York has certainly, of all the places that I've lived, has been the most formative. Having gone to college there and starting to play music there, there's just this, like, deep connection with it. And then I was still living there when 9-11 happened. I was home that morning. I'd just flown home from Las Vegas the night before, and I was about to go play in Washington, D.C., a gig at a college, and then 9-11 happened. So I think... It's like I wasn't already deeply, deeply tied emotionally to that city. 9-11 surely like seared that into my bones. And so to then see New York going through what it was going through before it really started to spread the way that it did all around and continues to right now. um, I think that it just I it's like it just was devastating. And I could Mm -hmm. not picture a city that's so teeming with people and energy just it it just i kept picturing everything emptied out and we were also those images that we you know that people were posting of aerial views of london totally just empty of human beings and paris totally empty and new york of course was in there as well it just made such an impression on me and how it was like a relief in some ways because those cities are so overwhelming and intense but also that's not how they're supposed to be The that's the beauty of them is the energy that they create and that's why people go mm-hmm. there so um, yeah I think once you live somewhere and you have those kinds of bonding moments with you know the people that are in them like there's this part of who you are it sort of becomes woven into you and I don't know mm-hmm. like I think I, you know the marathon bombing I had the same exact reaction my dad still lives there and I know your family's still there too I think wherever you have people whether they're your family or they feel like family you just feel it hurts in ways that you can't explain
0: water so hot it turns my skin red
2: But you can. Rise, uh, this song was inspired by an infertility support group that you hosted in Chicago. And it's about the privilege to really show up for a friend in pain and then to also let them see yours. And I feel like the opening line is very telling uh, for how good of a friend you are and how good you are at reading people. I saw the face you made when you thought I looked away. How did your experience with these support networks in living through your infertility path weigh on your empathy and your special ability to see people?
1: Oh, like, I mean, it was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. Truly, it's, it became as important to me as music. It was like I had my infertility world and then my music world, Um I think the whole reason I started writing songs in the first place, I mean, aside from the fact that I needed to write them to process whatever I was processing, because I love connecting with people. um, And that's ultimately the goal for me when I'm writing a song. I mean, if it helps me, that's awesome. But ultimately, what I really wanted to do is it to be a mirror you hold up to somebody who's listening and saying like, oh, guess what, I'm, I'm totally human and broken too. Let's hang out. And that's really what the support group was it was just like a place to meet in this total vulnerability zone where I I love that. Like I I always joke with my friends that I hate I hate parties and people who know me know that I'm quite extroverted and they're like, I do not understand how you don't like parties. And I'm like, this is why I don't like parties. It's because when you don't know people, you tend to it's just small talk and it just sucks the life out of me. I wanna meet in this very real I'm not saying you we have to talk about our greatest Capital T traumas in the first two minutes of meeting. But I love when you meet someone and they like go right to that place with you of just being a real human being who's not pretending they have it all together all the time. Because in that place, you find vulnerability. In that place, you find humor. In that place, you're not alone. And you're like, oh, I got a human I could be human with. And I loved that about the group. Even after I left and uh, left Chicago to move to Colorado. And I was no longer running the group. Um, I even said to my husband, I was like, having such a hard time meeting people here, like where we're not just doing small talk. I found it so sad. Like, I want to get in that place. And I was like, maybe I'll start another support group just so I can meet people in the no BS zone, you know? So mm-hmm. it was totally in my wheelhouse. I feel like if I weren't a, a, a singer songwriter, I probably would want to be a therapist because I love... I so tune in, and I'm an empath probably to a degree that is not healthy because I can feel people's energy coming off them if they're not okay. I have a hard time not absorbing it. I don't know if you have that same problem. but I have that. Yeah, Yeah. where I'm like, oh. You know, at a party, sometimes I feel like all I feel is what people are feeling, and so maybe that's also why I hate parties. I don't know. So it can be a blessing and a curse. Am I right?
2: Yes. (laughs) This... (laughs) Rise is one of two Rose Cousins contributions on the album, and the last time we talked for the podcast, we did not even get into the Rose Cousins world. We didn't. Um, Rose is your no, we didn't. I am shocked. That's crazy. Rose is your best friend. She's a singer songwriter from Canada. Um, You've known each other for maybe like almost twenty years. Yeah, pretty close. Pretty close. Yep. Yep. Can (laughs) can you talk about your connection and what it's like to have not just a friend like Rose, but like a musical best friend, Mm. like someone to relate to on a musical level?
1: Mm. Um, I have to say I've never had a friend like Rose before. Um, And you know Rose. She's a very singular human being. And really, like, she's one of the most remarkable people I've ever met. And when I say I've never had a friend like her before... Um, We have traversed so many different uh, life changes and life experiences together that have been really hard for us individually and also together. And where you can kind of get into tough spots with a friend and you can say, all right, well, we're just going to gloss over that and never talk about it and then hope that it doesn't come up again. We kind of like have really, we've been through some really hard stuff together. And I think that's why we're so close is because I can be, so raw and so real with her and she feels the same way Um, and from that uh, I feel like you know all these other wonderful things come like I can you know I was terrified about doing a Kickstarter for this record I'd never done one by myself and Rose was like my emotional doula on that front and really I could send her stuff and she'd be like "Nah, uh, it's okay and she would tell me honestly if something was working or not working and it's so wonderful to be that like to have someone be that real with you because then you can just trust them implicitly um and i do the same for her and i think that is remarkable as far as the musical side that has been there from the beginning like matt smith i don't know if you know the story of how we met but matt smith had her open for me at passim when she was just really starting to tour outside of canada and uh i think he was like oh these two idiots they're really gonna get a (laughs) lot they're gonna crack (laughs) each other up And it was just immediate. Like, we just had an immediate ease uh, and uh, total, like, hilarious, like, idiocy together. And I'm so grateful for that. But also, not only did we have that kind of friendship, like, fun chemistry, we also just immediately loved singing together. And our voices just seemed to know each other. And that is the coolest thing. And that just never gets old. It's so magical when you find people that you can sing like that with. So I just Mm. hope we get to do more of that. I haven't seen her since before the pandemic, but we talk Mm. almost every day. And, uh, yeah, I miss her a lot. She's friggin'
2: amazing. I never knew your mother. The next song, The Day You Were Born. She's been gone so long.
0: And I'll never get to thank her. Given me your and all the light you bring me
2: when my darkness comes. Edie. This is the most ridiculous song on the record. Like what the actual hell. It's so emotional. And you said even after seven years It's hard for me to sing this song without becoming emotional. Mm -hmm. So it's a love song to your husband, who is a great dad, and it came naturally to him right away, even when he did not have that same experience of a a great dad there for him when he was younger. So how has writing and sharing this ridiculous song helped you better understand where Matt came from? (sighs) I have to to
1: often revisit that song because as our kids get older – And we, you know, it's, I mean, we all know when you have kids, they kind of like show you all of your stuff that you haven't looked at in yourself. And (laughs) it's just so uncomfortable sometimes. Um, And, you know, Luca's, he's going to be 10 this fall. I mean, he's like heading into teen land and he's so smart and so emotionally tuned in. Both of my kids are, but in very different ways. And they always are, especially lately, just like really showing all the things that Matt and I don't really realize that we do or that we carry from our own childhoods. Um, you know, I feel like when I sing that song, it's this constant sort of recheck in, like when he and I get the kids in bed and we're sitting there on the couch and it's been a hard night or somebody had a meltdown and we're like, oh God, what if we're doing this terribly, terribly, terribly wrong? I mean, I think every parent asks that question because ultimately, when do you really know? I don't know. Is there some day where someone's like, and by the way, this was terrible, but this part was pretty good that you did here. You feel so <laughs> lost and so at sea so much of the time. Singing that song is so grounding to me cuz I I really wrote it up just I would think I was like doing dishes in the kitchen in our apartment in Chicago and listening to Matt singing some like ridiculous yodely song with Luca in his room when he was probably two. And I was like, "Oh my gosh, like this is so hard and it's so beautiful and also how magic that I'm with this person that is like a total goofball and just in there like loving singing a stupid song with his kid like and when no one did that with him. And how does he know how to do that? How does he know how to show up that way? And uh, I'm just so grateful. He's freaking ridiculous. He's pretty amazing. So mm. yeah, that song is still really hard for me to sing. I'm so grateful that the, that the emotion and the feeling is still there again and again. It's grounding for me to sing it on a lot of levels.
2: You know who I sent that song to?
1: What? Janet. Oh, Janet. God, Janet. I I feel like we need to call Janet and bring her in on the conversation. <laughs> just I send her the Zoom link? Jan- yes. I think. Is Janet taking on new friends? I'm just curious. <laughs> does she have an availability?
2: Oh, yes. <laughs> um, Teacher is the next song, which um, I have a thousand questions about, but I'm going to th- Keep it to three. Okay.
0: Why are you always frowning in the mirror? Don't you know your little girl's watching you? I wish you could see yourself clearer. How the lines on your face, they just let the light through.
2: I think this is this is a good summation of it. On Teacher on is a song about setting a good example girl. for your daughter when it comes to being a woman in the world in terms of things like body so image, wearing makeup perhaps aging. Mm. So it has to be such a hard balance to be dealing with your own problems while having this little shadow, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Who notices everything. Everything. Mm.
1: Yes, yes. It's just so interesting. I mean, I'm aware of that. I was aware of that stuff when Luca was a little boy to some degree, but it's just not going to be internalized the same way that it is for her. Um, yeah, when I'm putting on makeup and she's looking at me like, what are you, what are you doing? What is that? And I was like, oh God, how do I explain this without her feeling like I'm somehow saying, I'm not good enough. Just like when I'm hanging out here with my freckles and my brown spots on my face, I have to put something on me to make me feel okay. I think the way that I first described it to her was you know how you like to play dress up or get your nails painted or put on a sparkly dress. Moms kind of like to do that too. It's sort of the same thing. And that felt like the most benign way to explain it. But still, I, I don't really know how to navigate it the right way. I mean, I think so many of us who have daughters are like, duh, never talk about your weight in front of them, never talk about you know, how you fit into your clothes and all of that stuff. Like, I I try to be so careful of it. But I also know my influence only goes so far. And as she moves further further away from me, she will have influence from her friends and what she sees on TV and the movies that she watches. And, you know, but I watch my own mom who lives here in town, like how she feels about her body at 77 and her face changing. My mom is a great beauty. And I feel like, you know, that is a burden and... A wonderful thing and I think that uh, I watch her relationship as her body changes and she's navigating that and now as I'm doing that in my late 40s and like what's the best thing that I can do to try to have Emmy hold on to the at-homeness that she feels in her body I don't know mm-hmm. I, I really don't know I'm trying to figure it out and do my best to just tell her how strong and awesome
2: she is <laughs> I don't know right we're all trying to right. figure it out and every kid
1: needs something different you know
2: have you, I mean, she she's probably too young to have this conversation, but have you considered talking to her? I'm not a parent, so what mm. do I know? I, I know <laughs> you know <nothing>. so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am a lady, though. Um, mm. But have you considered, like, talking to her at some point about, like, exactly what you're saying in this song? She hasn't actually even heard, well, actually, maybe it's been played around her. But she's not,
1: Luca, to, my son Luca tunes into lyrics a lot. Emmy doesn't so much. Occasionally she will. Um, I think as she gets older, yeah. I think if she gets and I don't even think that much older, it would probably be a good idea for me to instead of being so afraid of talking about body stuff at all, I think it would be great for me to address it probably more proactively. It's so funny because Emmy until recently Emmy and I would shower together all the time and she'd make comments about my body. <laughs> and I would be like <sighs> Oh, God, this is, like, so mortifying. But I... So she'd say something like, Mom, your butt, it's so baggy. And I'd be like... (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I mean, she's not wrong. And I'd be like, I know. My butt is so baggy. And you know what? I like it like that. You know, so I'm constantly, like, (laughs) turning it that way. Or she'd be like, you're your body's so funny like how your belly does that thing and I'd be like oh god okay just like hold it together I'm like and in my in my mind I'm like mad because I'm like I carried two babies of course my belly does this thing but I can't be defensive of it I'm just like yeah isn't it cool I made two babies and like look what my belly did like look what my belly held two people and then I'll turn it around like that and just sort of talk about the wonder of our body so I'm, but I, but as you point out, like I'm not really proactively talking to her about it. I'm reacting to what she says, and I feel like I've I've been scared. So maybe I I'm going to call Janet, and maybe Janet Janet, <laughs> Janet can help me address these issues with my daughter. Oh, I, feel like she, I feel like Janet would must have a really good meme. She's like I have
2: a book with uh,
1: <laughs> how to talk about cellulite with your daughter exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see as she gets more. Tweeny, how how I start to navigate that?
2: I'll I'll report back in a few years. Yeah, I kind (laughs) of like that idea of you taking control of the narrative of like you know, guess what? Yeah, the stuff that you're feeling, everybody feels it. Everybody feels it. Absolutely, absolutely.
1: You're right. I mean, like we started to talk about like how babies are made, and both my kids were made with in vitro. So like they started asking like, what if you don't do in vitro? Like how does that happen? And you're like, okay, I thought we were just going to the post office, but apparently we're talking about this today. <laughs> and I'm really open about that stuff. And it's just interesting how body image is still, I think it's so hard because it's still so hard for me. And I, I'm like talking about sex with my kids is not scary because I that's like already, I already passed the embarrassment with that. But like all the things that we feel every day when we look in the mirror, like they never totally goes away because we're constantly changing and having to like re-up our understanding and acceptance of those changes so maybe that's why mm-hmm. it's hard to proactively talk about it you know
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we're still
1: in it sometimes you have to be north of an experience to be able to talk about it and i'm still deeply oh, yeah. in the center of it all
0: i know those voices and all their lives maybe it's time we set them Been on the dock till late. We play hide and seek. Marvel
2: at the Milky Way. The next song is All That Space, which is our second Rose Cousins All appearance. Uh, which is fun. Um, this song was written as a commission for a man who thought his wife was like slipping away from him and he shared a lot of info with you that she was longing for her own space Mm. and I feel like space whether you realize it or not comes up on a few songs Mm -hmm. on this record so how did the practice of writing this song from her perspective impact your own feelings about space or just to give you an opportunity Mm
1: -hmm. about how
2: you're feeling about space especially in these pandemic times Yes, that is a very astute observation. When I was writing
1: this song, it was January of 2020. I had just had my accident. I was feeling kind of overwhelmed. And I knew, you know, I write a lot of these commission songs, which I can't remember if we talked about it our last conversation, but they tend to be very sort of chipper and cheery and they're for someone's birthday or a wedding. And, you know, they tend to be on the romantic, everything is rosy side. So then to do, and I do much darker ones now. And this was one of the darker ones Um, and not even darker, but it was just, you know, a song of of, heavy, yeah, heavy and really real about what was going on for them. Um, Anyway, I was going to write the song initially, and I think he wanted me to write it from his perspective about what he wanted to say to her. And I said, you know, you've shared with me that she's really, really craving space. And I said, if she's craving space, maybe by writing it in first person, saying what like that would be a way to show her that you are understanding what she is actually needing maybe we won't get it 100 percent right but if she feels understood and that you want to give her that stuff in the context of the relationship maybe she'd be that much more willing to like stay and work on that stuff in the context of it like what i was saying was like let's not chase her let's like let's let her be where she is and let the song surround her with love like i see where you are i see that you want to go away because you feel like you can't have those feelings here but you can like you're free to have them here um and so writing it was very um emotional I got so deep into it because I was like so worried about getting it right and having her feel like it was right because I was like what if the song is potentially part of this campaign to keep things going you know like that was scary um, yeah, a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. And I said, I was like, please understand that, like, I just I just write songs. Like, I don't know how she's going to feel. But I know that if I were in her position, I'd want my husband to say, like, I want you to feel whatever you're feeling. And it's scary and I'm afraid of losing you, but I want to let you be where you are instead of me grasping. And he was amazing and was totally on, on board with that. Um, I think that I really relate to that song in a lot of ways because... I am in a relationship where I feel like I have a lot of space. Um, We have this really wonderful friendship and connection. Um, And also, I feel like part of why I knew Matt was the right person for me was because he allows me to be wholly who I am. He didn't meet me at 22 where I was kind of figuring out what I wanted to do. I was already a touring singer-songwriter and had been for 13 years by the time we got together. And I go on tour for a week, a month, usually now that I'm starting to again, post pre in COVID, whatever the hell we're in right now. And he never, ever once has ever made me feel guilty about that. And to be able to be wholly who you are in the context of your relationship. I feel like that's honestly, in my mind, that's the best gift anybody could give me in a relationship. And I think that's why he's the right fit for me, because I, I think we do that for each other. So I think I was harnessing like all those feelings of gratitude to have that in the relationship Mm. that i do although i have to be careful when i sing it live because like my mother-in-law might be in the audience sometimes and i forget like oh god she might think this is about us you know i I, and then she's (laughs) gonna worry that we're not that we're not okay um but yeah it's that's one of my favorite parts of writing is getting
2: inside someone else's experience don't you have that song that's like um about drinking, then oh. you would, like, preface that song like, this is not me.
1: Yes, the um <laughs> or, like, Lonely, is- my song Lonely, yeah. the
2: first line is, I get so brave
1: when I'm drunk. When I'm drunk. Yeah, and the truth is, I've actually never really been drunk in my whole life. And so my friends who know, uh, know me are like, what are you, what's going on? Are you okay? What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's fun to... Try on all of those things. It makes for far more interesting songwriting. Mm. Like you run out of your own emotional real estate. Sometimes it's nice to like step inside someone else's experience.
2: The next song, Georgia, you started writing this song using the cut up lyric songwriting method, which is a lot like what we used to do when we were teens, you know, Mm -hmm. like cut up phrases from books and magazines, put them together, seek out inspiration. Um, What's really cool is that you eventually got to Georgia O'Keefe, who uh, I've, had to like look up on Google because you were talking about her skull paintings and I know her mostly for her beautiful flower, flower. paintings. Mm-hmm. Um, so the song became a conversation between you and her, but what's been your experience with Georgia O'Keefe and her work and how has it resonated with you?
1: I just remember first seeing her work in probably an art class in high school and I just remember it I it gave me this like I still remember the feeling that like almost like creepy crawly feeling um, like unsettled I was unsettled by her paintings in a way that I found so compelling kind of like I mean I remember having that feeling hearing certain people sing too where you get like you know the hair stands up on the back of your neck Mm -hmm. Um, so you know I mean I love her flower paintings absolutely but her skull paintings and her desert paintings have always been the ones that have haunted me, probably because they're sort of this reminder of your own mortality and and it's they're lonely and and spacious to bring back the theme of space. whoa, whoa, there it. I just brought it right back. Um, and then I remember seeing her husband, Alfred Stieglitz's photographs of her. and she just looks like intimidating and defiant and like sort of mad, but like, so self-confident like she's just such a badass she just always has had this crazy like it's almost like I just had this like immediate crush on her when I saw her work and then uh seeing her in these beautiful photographs I mean the photographs he takes of her are so sultry and sensuous and then also kind of hard-edged all at the same time um so I'd always had this fascination with her and then I think when I was writing that song, I I think it was February or March of 2021. So we were like deep into pandemic life. I was still teaching my kids at home. And I was so in need of quiet where I was like, you know, I felt like I always had children on me and needing something while I was trying to make something. I was getting up at like four and five in the morning just to have hours of solitude. In general, I tend to get up early, but I was getting up crazy early because I was like, did Georgia O'Keefe have anyone like asking her to help her sign into Minecraft, you know, at all hours of the day, you know? <laughs> and of course, I'm grateful, love my kids at the same time to never have any separation for all of those months was hard on all of us. And I was thinking like, what is a life like for an artist woman who has chosen not to have a family? And you know, she would have wide swaths of time to just sit in the desert and like create these beautiful artworks. And that was her only thing she did all day. Again, I wouldn't choose that ultimately because I love being a mom. And I also was having these like fantasies of like, oh, wide swaths of time to make my art for a couple weeks would be super awesome. Then I'll come home and be ready to be more present. But it just turned into like, what would she think of us at this time? Like the look at you and look at us we're all like spinning out in every direction trying to be everything to everybody and she would think it mm-hmm. was just so stupid and so ridiculous and, and I just kind of needed that message and uh so I stole it from her whether she wanted to give it to me or not was it water on the desert oh the cold glare
0: of the canvas or did it change with the wind saves me When I'm inside it I go hazy From the craving Oh
2: The next song on the record is The Cypress and the Oak. Oh, anyone could see,
0: even before you fell in deep. Shane behind her in his physics
2: chair, his fingers woven in her chestnut. Hair Which is another song commissions for old friends. Is it Fred and Becky? No, it's not Fred and Becky. It's a
1: couple named Shane and Sunshine who live in Atlanta.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: They're celebrating their 20th wedding anniversary, and you were really drawn to the song, um, and you asked them if it was okay to put put the song on the record. They said yes, you made some changes, and then um, you said it felt like a blueprint for a good, strong marriage at the heart of which is the feeling of coming home. So how did you put your own experience of marriage in this song? And then how did you try and make it realistic or like not make it like a fairy tale? That's a great question. Honestly, they gave me so much
1: great fodder that I didn't really have to change that much. There were just a couple details that were so specific to them. I did leave Shane's name there at the beginning of it because I wanted their stamp to still be in the song. Um but the, it was so cool because I'd never done a commission like this before, but um, Sunshine commissioned it for her husband, Shane, by asking all of their family around them to to ask them of their impressions of the two of them as a couple, because they were high school sweethearts and are now have now been together all this time. Um, and so it was the most like usually someone asked me to write something for a person. I only have fodder from that one from their love and so to have all these perspectives from like parents and best friends and siblings and so then it became this sort of quilt. And it was such a cool thing because obviously many things were repeated and many themes came up again and again. But what was really so obvious was just that they at, at the heart of it are just absolute best friends, you know, that they go through this adventure together. But really, at the end of the day, that yes, they love each other, but they really like like each other. Um, there's a detail talk about not fairy tale The the, the, um, second verse says like, um, you know, all the tasks that he can't stand. She's right there to take him off his hands. He always does the same for her. They've never shied away from the work. They know what it's worth. And that's like, I mean, I literally, they told me details about how one of them hates to unload the dishwasher. so the other is like, that's just, I know that's just her she hates it. It's my area. It doesn't really bother me. But she can do the things that I can't stand. <laughs> and so much of a partnership is like, are those nitty-gritty, like, mundane little details that make your life kind of okay together? And that, like, Matt is aware of, like, when the gutters need to be cleaned. And I know when the kids' clothes need to be swapped out for the next big size. You know? So those are the little things that kind of make the machine <laughs> go. And I know that's not sexy or romantic. But it, it is also all of that, they're really acts of service. And then act of service is what makes the machine go really. And so I always struggled with that verse because I was like, is that too pragmatic and not romantic? And then I realized like that is romantic is doing acts of service mm. for the person that you love and seeing like, oh, she friggin' hates that. So I'm going to do it for her. And then she is like, oh, that filled up my bucket. Now I'm going to do that. For him or for her. And I I just love that. So for me that's the br- the blueprint is really seeing what the other person can't stand and helping them do it,
2: you know? Can you ask Matt to come clean our gutters?
1: Oh yeah, he's so into it. I'll send him right over.
2: Okay. Great.
1: <laughs> Five
0: the kitchen's still quiet. The sun is still high. Couldn't sleep, so I thought I'd
2: quit trying. Her quit trying. Getting closer to the end. Uh, this song is Who I Was, which you call your Pearl Jam Jam. <laughs> and I, Edie, also heard Cranberries yes. in there too. Yes. Some big time, uh, but really cool production. Uh, I feel like there is no Edie Carey song like it. Mm. Um, it's a song about living long enough to look back on your life and having actual errors to point to and remember the person you've been and to see how you've changed, etc. cetera, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said, being a mother to a little girl who is five, which is the age when my parents divorced, has been unexpectedly healing. So what mm-hmm. has that process taught you of being... A mom to a child who's now that pivotal age that you are what has that process taught you about your child self and who you are now Um, I think I think I've always thought of myself as being
1: much younger emotionally when I think of myself at four or five I think oh I was so little I did not really understand what was going on and on some level I probably didn't totally but now being around Emmy I'm like oh god I think I probably had a much better sense of what was going on. And and that's both reassuring and um, uh, uncomfortable to think about because I like to think that I was like, la, 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 I'm just playing with my Barbies and everything's fine and it's great. We have two houses and two Christmases and all the things I used to say that were like, a way for me to make everybody think I thought divorce was okay, which it wasn't. It was hard to hear my dad answer the phone when my mom was calling and hear his like chipper tone turn dark. That was difficult. And those stuff, you know, those things got in there in ways that I don't think I really realized. And I see how observant she is. um, And yet also how resilient how like we'll have a hard bedtime, and she's really mad, and she's having all these big feelings, and then she goes to sleep, and she wakes up, and she's like a new person again, and is like, "Hi, mom, I love you." And I'm like, "But you hated me at bedtime last night." It's a, it's a, it's you know, it's a reminder that kids are unbelievably able to. I mean, they are yes, in some ways, yes, they're very impressionable and fragile, just like we all are, but also that they are incredibly able to bounce back from things and able to synthesize things in ways that we can't imagine. So Mm. it's been, I've learned a lot by watching her and how she observes things in the world and that, you know, going through COVID, she has no memory of a life before COVID. She was too little when it started. And I think, is this going to change her so deeply? And is this, you know, the divorce experience for her? Like, what is it going to be like for her? And I I think ultimately it's going to be okay. I think it's going to give her a hell of a lot of grit And I think that's a good reminder that, like, I'm not irreparably broken because of what happened when I was four or five either.
2: The last song on the album, it's a doozy. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It's your free. And this is a long setup again. So uh, just to give listeners some context, this song came out of your second try to have a child. Um, a biological child. Uh, Emmy is from an egg donor, mm-hmm. which you went to eventually because you did find out that none of your embryos were viable, but the horrible anticipation that you would feel waiting for the call, it was kind of like even worse than the news, mm-hmm. the, um, the bracing for the pain. Um, then you described like the lightness and the freedom that you felt um, and it kind of reminds me of, like, some Buddhist things when I was, like, dabbling in Buddhism, mm-hmm. um, where they talk about the fear of pain mm. being worse than the pain itself mm. and that acceptance and suffering. Mm. And I've also felt that recently where I've, I've felt um, very tense and stressed out and very anxious about a situation. And then the next day I wake up and I feel this beautiful lightness. I'm like, why don't I feel like this all the time? Absolutely. Um, But anyways, how did this experience and writing this song help you when you find yourself being afraid of the pain and when you're bracing for the bad news?
1: I wish that that I could say that I've gotten better at the (laughs) anticipation, the anticipation and fear of pain. I'm a very anxious person, person. And I, I'm a I'm definitely a catastrophizer. But I do feel like catastrophizing has made me really good at once the catastrophe actually does happen because I'm like I've been like bracing for it and preparing for it this whole time, then I'm able to kind of handle it pretty well. It's almost like once it actually happens, I'm like I knew it was going to happen, so I'm kind of over it. It's sort of like people who when they end a relationship you know, it's like they've been getting ready to end their relationship and then they do. And then they're like, why don't I feel worse? Because it's almost like you've pre-grieved it. And then maybe the other person is like, what the hell just happened? And then they have to grieve it once that's happening. But I I feel like when you spend so much time worrying about the worst happening, when it does happen, you do, you do, for better or worse, you do handle it fairly well because you have been ready for it. Um I wish that I was not such a worrier and that I didn't, like, wake up at four in the morning and, like, think about all the things that could potentially go wrong and do that brain spinny thing in the night. I wish I could do that less. Um, But I just sort of on some level think that's how I'm made. Just, you know, I'm meditating more and trying to make it a little bit better. But (laughs) um, I do feel like that, that particular experience was... You know, I, I knew on some level in my bones that the news was not going to be good and that all the embryos that we had made would not be healthy um, or viable. Um, but at the same time, how freeing it was, because I didn't have to do IVF anymore. I, I It allowed me to say, okay, I've done this enough times. My doctor even was like, you don't seem good. Like, it's time to move on. I mean, she said that very lovingly. But like, mm-hmm. let's move on to the thing that's going to work. And once we went to egg donor, all of a sudden... All the news was good. And then the news became Emmy. And now Emmy is almost six. And the minute we were able to let go of that struggle, while it was so painful, it was so freeing. And
2: mm-hmm. I
1: didn't expect to feel that way. I really, like, after I got that news, I was like, I was almost giddy. Like, and I was like, why do I feel excited? Matt was like, what is wrong with you? This is terrible news. And you were crying and crying. And I was. But then I felt giddy because I was like, I did everything I could. And it's okay to let go of it. And now I don't have have to have the fear of what I was anticipating. Now I can at least let go of that fear and move move on to the next thing I'm going to be worried about.
2: (laughs) Mm. Man, Um, there's like so many more things to talk about with you. So I hope every time you release an album, you can come back on the podcast.
1: I would be thrilled. You ask such good questions, dude. Thank you so much.
2: Oh, thanks. Well, before we let you go, and yeah. this is not goodbye quite yet, okay. we have to do the lightning round.
1: Oh, my God. Yes. Okay. I've had my caffeine. I'm ready.
2: Okay. What was the first song you learned on the guitar? Steady On by Sean Colvin. Of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, duh, obviously. It's so cliche.
1: But it's an amazing song. Karaoke song. Um, I Can't Make You Love Me, Bonnie Raitt. I feel like Rose Cousins also. I mean, it's one Rose of the best songs of all time. Sung by one of the best singers of all time. Ah.
2: My karaoke song is all of your songs. <laughs> right. It's E-D- called E-D- E-D- Karaoke. karaoke. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever witnessed that, but I really need to. Well, the story is, real quick story for our listeners, um, <laughs> back in the mid-2000s, I worked at Club Passim, and after shows, sometimes we'd close down the club, and a couple friends would come, and we'd put Edie Carey on the iPod, and we'd turn on the um, the microphone, and we'd sing along. <laughs>
1: oh my Edie
2: karaoke—that
1: is the greatest thing ever. If I ca- accomplished nothing else in the world, if that—if I got to inspire Edie karaoke, really, I'm all, I'm all done here. This is my job here <laughs> is done. Who was your first celebrity crush? Hmm. Besides George O'Keefe, um, my first celebrity crush, I mean, probably Sean Colvin. I'm not in a romantic way necessarily, but just because I really thought she was just the coolest. She was the first one that I was like, I want to be best friends with her.
2: Oh. Yeah. Who's the nicest musician you've ever met? I mean, in our folk world, there is a plethora,
1: that is for sure. I have to say, I think Peter Mulvey is one of the nicest people that
2: I've ever met. Man, that is the third Peter Mulvey answer we really? have accepted during the lightning round.
1: Oh, my God. I I just have to say, Peter Mulvey did something so classy, and you can include this or not, but uh, I opened for him in Phoenix years ago. I, it was like clear that a lot of the folks that were there were fans of mine, just because they were like singing along to my songs and... You know, but Peter was the headliner, Peter Karaoke. <laughs> and, but I was the opener, and, you know, I was making some small set amount of money, but I could not have cared less because, let's be honest, I'm a huge Peter Mulvey fan, and I was so pumped that I got to sing songs and listen to Peter Mulvey. And at the end of the night, he just came up and, like, handed me, like, a whole bunch of money just because it was so gen- He was just like, he's like, this is, like, only right, and you brought so many people, and I'm so great. I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was one of the classiest most unnecessarily kind things that anybody's ever done to me in music and it made such a huge impression on me wow so I'm clearly not the only one who knows this about this man but I just think he's remarkable on
2: a lot of levels uh first album you bought with your own money um
1: you're gonna laugh at me I think it was a cassette of Wilson Phillips and I think I got it at like a truck stop in Maine on the way to like summer vacation
2: and I listened to, to it a lot.
1: Yeah, it does track, right? Female yes. harmonies. I'm just saying. I didn't know the folk scene yet, so. But it
2: was like I was heading in that direction. Flying or invisibility? Ah, uh, flying for sure. Flying. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm glad to hear you say that because I've gotten a lot of invisibility answers lately, and I'm like.
1: That's when I asked my son that exact question. He always says invi- invisibility, and I'm like, "Why?" He's like, "So I can be sneaky." And I'm like, "Well, you're you're already a little sneaky. We're all a little sneaky. <laughs> like, Wouldn't you want to fly? Come on, like you can blend right. in.
2: Flying sounds incredible." This is the last question. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? It's a tough one. The most beautiful place, um, I there
1: there are a lot of contenders for that one. I'd say. I did the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu, and that was pretty remarkable. Coming down like at sunset, I mean su- sunrise, down into Machu Picchu as the sun was coming up. God damn it. Oh, my That gosh. was amazing. That was ridiculous. Beautiful. I think I killed my knees, and they'll never be the same going down that staircase. <laughs> but the view was With unbelievable. It. So worth it. I may not walk much longer, but
2: I had a great view, and I'm into yeah. it. Yeah. 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 Well, Edie, thank you so much. This was great. Thank Uh, you. I knew we were on for a really long time, so I really appreciate you taking all the time. Oh, Oh, thank you so much. You're such a good interview, dude. You're
1: amazing. Cindy Howes, everyone. And Janet. Let's give it up for Janet. (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag Janet. You better hashtag Janet on this one. I totally will (laughs) hashtag Janet. (laughs) Thanks truly for such a fun conversation. I always have such a good time with you.
2: This episode of Basic Folk was produced by me, Cindy. Alex Stanton composes our music. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all our episodes there, wherever you get podcasts. You can search for Basic Folk on the SiriusXM app, or you can go to our website, basicfolk.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend who you think might like it too, because... That's the way the world works. We share and we care. All right. There you go. A little Easter egg for you. Me singing at the end of the episode. Okay. Talk to you next time. Bye.